there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. <laughs> James, toss me that ball. Toss it here. Oh, nice one. Right in the gorge. Race you for it. You're on. Here it is. Wait, what's... Why'd you stop? Peter, look, down in the ravine. Are those people? Holy. What happened? Oh my god, Pete. Their heads, their heads are gone. They're dead. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the Paracast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on the Kingsbury Run Murders, a series of mysterious and brutal slayings that plagued the slums of Cleveland in the 1930s. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. On Monday, September 23, 1935, two boys, James Wagner and Peter Costera, living on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, were playing near a train yard when they discovered two bodies lying in a ravine. It was a horrifying sight. The bodies had been stripped naked, and their heads and genitals had been removed. And these two bodies were the first official victims of a killer that would later be known as the Cleveland Torso Murderer, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, and most popular, the Kingsbury Run Killer. The killings continued from 1934 to 1938, and eventually the case would be taken up by one of America's most legendary lawmen, Elliot Ness. The search for the killer would lead to the fiery destruction of a Cleveland neighborhood, all in a desperate and ultimately futile attempt to stop the murderer. Kingsbury Run is a ravine formed from a creek bed that stretches from Cleveland's East 90th Street and Kinsman Road to the Cuyahoga River. In the 1800s, Kingsbury Run was filled with flowers, trees, and brooks. It was so beautiful, local residents used it as a picnic area. But by the 1930s, that beauty had been replaced by industry and squalor. The railroad had claimed the ravine, filling it with tracks and train yards. 
And since this was the time of the Great Depression, it was also home to people with nowhere else to go, including squatters, homeless camps, and shanty towns. The neighborhood around the gorge, also called Kingsbury Run, wasn't much better. It was an industrial slum full of the refineries, steel mills, and factories that fed the trains. The cliffs surrounding the ravine were dotted with the cheaply made homes of industrial workers. It was below one particularly crowded ridge called Jackass Hill that the two bodies were found. After finding the bodies, the boys managed to track down a railroad detective who called the police. When officers arrived at the scene, they saw the naked, headless torsos of two men. From the look of them, one was in his 20s, the other in his 40s. Detectives Orly May and Emile Musil were assigned the case. Detective Musil, good to see you. Would you take a look at those bodies? Yikes. Feet together, arms neatly tucked in at the sides. They look ready for their funeral. Well, you know, besides the whole not having heads thing. (sighs) Detective May, thank you for that insight. My preliminary investigation shows that the younger man has been dead for two or three days. The older one has been dead for five. Huh. Looks like the older fella's got himself a rash. Actually, I believe he was coated in some sort of chemical. Maybe a preservative. You know, I'll say one thing for the sicko who did this. He cleans up nice. There ain't a speck of blood anywhere around here as far as I can see. Correct. Both corpses are completely drained. It's likely they were murdered somewhere else and brought down to the ravine. Hey now, what do you suppose this is over here? Sticking out of the ground. Is that... Oh, is that hair? Men! Over here! Bring a shovel! Oh, God. Would you look at that, Musil? (coughs) Oh, I'm gonna need a minute. Well... At least now they'll be able to have an open casket. While searching the ravine, the detective spotted some hair sticking up out of the ground around 50 feet away from the bodies. They dug into the ground there and found the missing heads. The police also found the victim's genitals nearby, along with a railroad engineer's torch, a ladle, and a tin bucket full of black, oily fluid. Later tests would show it was crankcase oil from a car mixed with decayed blood and hair, probably human. It was never proven that the blood and hair came from the victims, however, and some detectives thought these objects were unconnected. They also found some rope, a cloth cap, and a coat that fit one of the bodies. The label said Baker Company. The bodies were immediately delivered to the morgue that night, and at 9 a.m. the next morning, Deputy Coroner Wilson Chamberlain began the autopsy. Hey, Doc. Ah, detectives. I've got a lot to show you. Take a look. Here on the wrists. Rope burns? That's my guess. They're only on the younger man. I'd wager he was tied up before death. There are no other signs of trauma on the bodies, apart from... The decapitation. Indeed. Now, it was an extremely clean cut so the killer would have had to use a very sharp blade. Something like a scalpel? Possibly. But here's something else. Something unsavory. Take a look at the neck muscles at the cut. See how the muscles have pulled back? That's something that only happens when you cut living tissue. 
Jeez, oh, Doc. This guy was alive when his head was cut off? It could have happened right after death, but there's also no blood in the heart. And with no other obvious trauma, it was probably pumping when the head was removed. I'm ruling the cause of death was decapitation combined with the accompanying shock and hemorrhage. I can't imagine dying like that. Find anything else? Mm, just that the younger one had some sort of vegetable for dinner before he died. Oh, and I was able to get fingerprints off both of them. The older man's fingerprints weren't on file. He would never be identified. But they ran the younger man's fingerprints through police records and found a match. His name was Edward Andresi, and police turned their attention to finding out more about him. Andresi was 29 and lived with his parents in a rooming house on Cleveland's west side. In his early 20s, he'd worked as an orderly in a hospital psychopathic ward, where he met and married a young nurse. She left him after only three weeks while she was pregnant with his baby. He'd left the hospital job in 1931, and apart from some time selling magazines, no one knew how he made money. Andresi had a bit of a criminal history. Once, he had been caught with a concealed weapon and was subsequently sent to a workhouse for 30 days. He had also been picked up for intoxication and was known to sleep off his liquor in a graveyard by the railroad tracks. He was known to hang out on West 25th Street, an area of Cleveland that earned the nickname Rowdy Row in the Roaring Third Police Precinct. Located in downtown, it was a mix of warehouses, flop houses, and gambling joints. During the summer before he was killed, Andresi had a number of troubling encounters in the Roaring Third. One night, he came home in a taxi cab with his head bloodied and no knowledge of how it happened. His mother remembered that two weeks before his body was found, a stranger showed up at Andresi's home. The stranger accused Andresi of sleeping with his wife and threatened to take care of him. Andresi had also told his sister that he'd stabbed an Italian in a knife fight and that the gang was after him. He had seemed like a normal man when police first started investigating, but Andresi was proving to be quite the character. His criminal lifestyle meant that the list of possible suspects kept growing. Approaching the case from a different angle, the police theorized that the crime might have had a sexual angle since the killer had emasculated his victims. They looked into Andresi's history for deviant behavior, finding that Andresi had spent the summer frequently visiting one nightclub, showing up each night with a different woman. Detectives interviewed another woman who said that Andresi had tried to sell her son the aphrodisiac Spanish fly. She also claimed he'd picked up another boy in the park and taken him to a nightclub. But the weirdest story that came out of the investigation, detailed in John Bartlow Martin's book, Butcher's Dozen, was from a man named Peter Feltis, who claimed that Andresi had taken sexual advantage of his wife. I knew Andresi from the time we were kids. A couple months ago, I ran into him with my wife, and he mentioned how bad she looked. I told him she was going through, um, female trouble. He told me he was a female doctor and I should let him examine her. And then he, uh, did things to her. I was gonna say something, but he was a big guy and I knew he always carried an ice pick with him. After he was, um, done, he told me that if he went home and got his instruments, he could fix her up within a month. You know so she could have children. 
but we told him not to bother. While that sounds crazy, police did find two doctor books and five physical magazines in Andresi's room. Although they moved to a new address, the couple also claimed that Andresi had followed them. He allegedly showed up outside their home with a nervous-looking man who he introduced as Eddie. Andresi told the couple they were thinking of sleeping in an empty apartment nearby. He'd explained that Eddie was the chauffeur for a wealthy woman that Andresi was treating for the same female problems he'd treated Feltis's wife for. Eddie was described as 28 to 30 years old, 5 foot 6, with a broken nose and very good teeth. Police thought that Eddie might have been the older, unidentified corpse, but when Feltis and his wife saw the body, they said it wasn't him. As lead after lead fizzled out, it seemed that this would become just another of the countless unsolved crimes in Kingsbury Run. But then, another body turned up. Or at least, most of one. Coming up, we'll learn more about the next victim. And now, back to the story. On September 23, 1935, two decapitated bodies were discovered in the Kingsbury Run area of Cleveland, Ohio. Despite uncovering the strange history of one of the victims, police were completely miffed. They had virtually no leads to follow, and it seemed like there was little else they could do. Then, the killer struck again. On Sunday, January 26, 1936, four months after the first two bodies were found, Cleveland butcher Charles Page was working in his shop when he heard a knock at the door. I'm coming, I'm coming. Yeah, what is it? Oh, sorry to bother you. I just saw that someone left some meat in the alley for you. Thought you should know. I don't... There's some meat in the alley? Figured you'd want to know before the cats got to it. Thanks. I'll bring it in. What kind of a delivery guy just leaves stuff out here where anyone can get to it? What is this stuff anyway? Oh. <coughs> what on earth? The butcher found two bushel baskets draped in burlap, filled with the mutilated body of a woman, a right arm, two thighs, and the lower part of a torso. They were each individually wrapped in newspaper. The coroner ruled that the body had been dead for two to four days. However, one of the newspapers, a copy of the Cleveland News, was from the day before, January 25th. So the body had to have been wrapped within the last day. And a neighbor reported being woken by a barking dog at 2 a.m. that Sunday, which might have been caused by the killer dropping off his victim. Once all of the pieces of the body had been unwrapped, the autopsy results contained slightly more helpful leads. Police checked the severed arm's fingerprints and found a match in their records. The victim was one Florence Martin, also known as Clara Dunn. Her occupation was listed as waitress, but she'd been arrested for occupying rooms for immoral purposes. Unfortunately, it looked like Florence Martin was also an alias. So, police canvassed the neighborhood, trying to find out who she actually was. Well, the police eventually traced her back to her address at a rooming house on Carnegie Avenue. They found personal letters that revealed her real name, Florence Polello. 
Her landlady said she'd been living there about nine months, was on welfare relief, and drank heavily. But she was well-liked by the other rumors. In her room, the police found a dozen dolls all neatly lined up. She often played with the landlady's children and lent them these toys. Police tracked down her ex-husband, Andrew Palillo, a post office worker in Buffalo. They'd married in 1922 or 23, but she walked down on him six years later, saying she was going to visit her mother in Ohio. Fifteen days after this, he ran into her walking down the street, holding the arm of another man. After that, she came back to the apartment and grabbed her things while he was out. He only saw her again one more time at their lawyer's office when they filed for divorce. He had no idea what she'd been up to since. Sometime after 1930, she'd moved to Cleveland and was well known to the population of the Roaring Third Precinct, which consisted mostly of bootleggers, sex workers, pimps, and madams. In 1934, she'd lived at a local hotel with a truck driver that she'd introduced to neighbors as her husband, Harry Martin. Police tried to track him down, but were never able to find him. Six weeks before the murder, Florence returned to the hotel with an unknown Italian, described as 27 years old, 135 pounds with a dark complexion and wearing a dark suit and cap, a description that wasn't far off from that of the mysterious Eddie. However, even after discovering the victim's past, the police's investigation was slowed by the fact that many of her friends had no interest in talking to the law. Her former pimp disappeared and was never found. Police tried to talk with several sex workers that were said to be her close confidants, but couldn't find them either. It also didn't help that Florence Palillo had even more aliases. Some knew her as Flo Davis, others as Flo Gallagher. She also had a number of lovers, which the police tracked down as best they could. One was a peddler that she'd lived with for a time, A few weeks before her body was found, he'd run into a friend of hers. Hey, you seen Flo around? What? Who? Flo. You seen her? You looking for her? Yeah, I'm looking. And when I catch her, I'm gonna cut her all up. The police tracked the peddler down, but couldn't find anything to link him to the crime. It was another dead end. On February 7, 1936, more parts of Flo turned up. Her upper torso, left arm, lower legs, and feet were found scattered against the back fence of a vacant house, several blocks from the butcher's shop. It was impossible to tell when they'd been dropped there. It might have been the same night as the butcher's delivery. And police still hadn't found all of Flo. Her head was never recovered. An autopsy of the upper torso revealed that Flo's neck muscles were retracted in the same manner as the first bodies, showing that she'd been decapitated before or just after death. Mercifully, this would be the last body recovered for a few months. But come summer, a familiar scene would play out again. Just after 8 a.m. on June 5, 1936, Two boys, 11-year-old Louis Chile and 13-year-old Gomez Ivy, skipped school to go fishing. They were heading to the river through a dry creek bed in Kingsbury Run. About a mile away from the site of the first murders, they discovered a pile of clothes under a tree. The boys thought that there might be money in the clothes, so they decided to poke them with a stick, only to be deeply frightened 
when a head rolled out. The kids ran home and hid for the rest of the day. They didn't tell anyone about what happened until Gomez's mom came home at 5 p.m. She told them to find a policeman. The patrolman called in the report and tried to find the head before detectives arrived. But because the boys had run away so quickly, they had a hard time finding it again. When they did eventually recover the head, it proved to belong to a handsome young man in his 20s with reddish-brown hair and brown eyes. Of course, without fingerprints, they'd have to find a way for the public to identify the body. In somewhat desperate fashion, the coroner's office cleaned up the head and put it on display in the front office. Between the nights of June 5th and June 6th, an estimated 2,000 people filed past the head. The hope was that someone could identify it, but it seemed that most showed up simply to satisfy their own morbid curiosity. Ultimately, no one recognized the head. Then on June 6, 1936, two crane operators found the corresponding naked decapitated body in a thicket between two train tracks near the 55th Street Bridge in Kingsbury Run. It was about a thousand feet from where the boys had found the man's head a day earlier. Unlike the first two male victims, this one had not been emasculated. It seemed to undercut the police's theory about the murders being sexually motivated. While the autopsy showed that the man had been dead for two or three days, a railroad detective said the body hadn't been in the thicket around 3 p.m. the day before its discovery. He had patrolled there around that time. This meant that the killer must have held the body for at least a day before disposing of it. They might have dumped it the night it was found, as another railroad worker reported seeing an old, dark Cadillac sedan parked under the bridge at 11 o'clock that night. This time, the body's fingerprints weren't on file, but police were still confident they'd be able to identify the victim, especially because he was covered with tattoos. He had a butterfly on his left shoulder, the cartoon character Jigs on his left calf, the initials WCG, an arrow through a heart, and a standard of flags on his left arm, a cupid on an anchor on his right calf, and finally, a dove underneath the names Helen and Paul on his right arm. Police took every opportunity they could to get the likeness of the head and the word of the tattoos out to the public. Detectives canvassed the area, showing photos of the victim to hundreds of sources. These photos were published in papers and described on the radio. They even put a plaster death mask of the victim on display at the Chicago Exposition during the summers of 1936 and 1937. But despite all that press, he was never identified. To this day, he's simply known as either the Tattooed Man or Number Four. When word of this victim spread, Cleveland's three newspapers were quick to pounce on the story. They pointed out the similarities between the recent killings and suggested that one killer was responsible for all four murders. If that was true, then the killer was following no clear pattern. The victims were all of different ages. Three were male and one was female. All had been decapitated, but one was dismembered, two emasculated, and one treated with some sort of chemical. The bodies were all dumped, but the heads were sometimes nearby, sometimes not. This led police to believe that these were crimes of opportunity, meaning that the killer had a bloodlust that they sated randomly when they happened to come across someone isolated and vulnerable. 
On June 7th, a day after the tattooed man's body was found, acting detective inspector Charles O'Neville gave an interview to the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper where he described the killer as a maniac with a lust to kill. Neville's theory was that the tattooed man was a stranger to the city who'd come into town by rail and fallen asleep by the train tracks. The killer had just stumbled upon him, sliced his throat in a frenzy, and then disrobed him. When the interviewer asked why the killer would undress the victim afterward, Neville said, that's a maniac's trick. He likely meant that he felt the killer was introducing varied random methodologies to the killings in order to throw off police. And this was decades before organizations such as the FBI would conduct more nuanced studies of killers, and indeed, the term serial killer wouldn't be coined until four decades later. And so, the Cleveland police force of 1936 was ill-equipped to catch this breed of criminal. But now that police had connected the killings, they started to look at earlier unsolved cases. One 1934 murder certainly seemed to fit with the Torso Slayer's M.O., it was an anonymous victim that had gained the nickname, the Lady of the Lake. On September 5, 1934, a year before the first bodies were found in Kingsbury Run, a carpenter named Frank Lagasse was picking up driftwood near the Euclid Beach Amusement Park on the shore of Lake Erie. Uh, this was about 10 miles to the northeast of Kingsbury Run. He saw what he thought was a piece of tree trunk, only to find it was the rotten lower half of a woman's torso. The torso was delivered to the Cuyahoga coroner, who found that it had been cut at the small of the back and the legs severed at the knees. It had also been in the water for three or four months, although the victim had been dead longer than that. In addition, the torso wasn't waterlogged, so the coroner theorized that it had probably been packed in a watertight container before being dumped in the lake. The container had broken open and spilled its contents into the water. Additional clues abounded. All of the skin on the torso was strangely discolored. At first, the coroner thought it had been burned, but the city chemist determined that a preservative had been applied. It was either calcium hypochloride or chloride of lime. The next day, the police got a call from Joseph Hayduk, a handyman on the lakeside estate 30 miles east of the amusement park. He had heard about the Lady of the Lake, and he said that two weeks before, he'd found something similarly horrific on the shore. Next up, we'll discover what Hey Duke found on the beach. And now, back to the story. By June of 1936, the Cleveland Police Department had discovered four dismembered bodies in the Kingsbury Run neighborhood. Though the killings seemed to be connected, investigators were having trouble coming up with any solid leads, so they turned to unsolved cases from the past. Nearly two years earlier, on September 5, 1934, a torso washed ashore on Euclid Beach, north of Cleveland. On September 6, a man named Joseph Hayduk called Cleveland police, claiming that he had found bones on the beach the previous month. Local law enforcement had investigated, but felt the bones weren't out of the ordinary. All right, hey, Duke. Now what is it you're trying to show me? Right over here, Mr. Deputy. There's no mister. It's just Deputy Sheriff. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Here you go. Doesn't this look strange? Yeah. What you got here are animal bones. That's all. Looks like a dead seagull. Yes, there is a dead seagull. But look here, next to it. Does that not look like a large rib? And here, 
Is that not part of a human spine? Human spine? Hey, Duke, you've been reading one too many crime magazines. But, sir... Deputy Sheriff, it's just animal remains. Go out and shoot yourself some quail once in a while. You'll see what I mean. Look, I don't want to argue with you. People are always having beach parties here. Just bury it in the sand along the shore. You know, out of the way. Hey, Duke did what he was told and he buried the bones. But after reading about the body washing up on the shore on September 5th, he reached out to police once more. The strange remains that Hey Duke had found were delivered to the coroner. They matched the Lady of the Lake torso perfectly. And it appeared the dead gull had been poisoned by the same preservative that was on the torso. Police tried to identify the victim, but there just wasn't enough evidence to go on. It was hard enough to get a positive ID when they had an entire body, much less a badly damaged torso and some miscellaneous bones. Regardless, the ultimate consensus was that despite all the similarities between this killing and the later ones, this was an unrelated murder. They mainly ruled it out because of distance. It was just too far away from Kingsbury Run. However, it may have been that Cleveland police simply didn't want to accept another murder within their jurisdiction. The Lady of the Lake body could have easily been dumped into the Cuyahoga River near the other Kingsbury Run murder sites. After that, it is perfectly feasible that the sealed container containing the torso may have washed into the lake. This is why today, many believe the Lady of the Lake was the torso killer's first victim and dubbed her victim number zero. Well, back in 1936, the police were overlooking this murder in the hopes that they wouldn't have to investigate yet another victim. This proved to be wishful thinking, however, as the next murder had already occurred. It took place well outside of Kingsbury Run and even outside of Cleveland. On July 22, 1936, a 17-year-old girl named Marie Barkley was taking a pleasant summer hike through a wooded area near her house. She'd crossed some railroad tracks and left Cleveland to go into the suburb of Brooklyn, Ohio. This part of the neighborhood was pretty empty, although there were scattered homeless camps throughout it. While stepping over a gully, Marie stumbled upon something lying on the ground. She let out a shriek as she realized what it was. A headless, naked, badly decomposed corpse sat tangled amidst weeds and dirt. It had clearly been there for a while. Marie alerted the authorities and they quickly arrived on the scene. The victim was in his 40s. His head was found about 15 feet from his body. There were clothes scattered nearby, including a dark gray suit, a light blue polo shirt, and worn brown shoes. Decomposition suggested the murder took place three or four months prior. That meant the victim was likely killed around the same time as the tattooed man. Unfortunately, the long exposure to the elements made identifying the body almost impossible. The face had decomposed to the point where it was unidentifiable, and police were unable to take usable fingerprints. There were no wounds on the victim, apart from the dismembered head, and like most of the other bodies, the neck muscles suggested the decapitation had occurred while the victim was still alive. This would also prove to be the only killing on the west side of Cleveland. Despite this change of locations, the newspapers immediately linked this murder with the others. While few had cared about a couple isolated anonymous killings in the poorest parts of the city, 
Suddenly, Cleveland became convinced there was a murderer in their midst, and interest in the murders ramped up significantly. On July 23rd, the Cleveland News ran the headline, Madman or Cool Killer, Police Probers Groping for Leads in County's Five Headless Murders. And the article summed up several possible theories for the case. From a religious zealot determined to save the human race from perdition, to a cool and calculating killer who decapitates his victims with the skill of a physician. Either theory was possible, as the police had plenty of clues, but still had found little definite information about the killer's motives. Each new killing seemed to provide more questions than answers. While there were similarities between each murder, the killer seemed to keep changing their methods, and particularly how they disposed of each body. This was never more true than when the sixth body was found. On September 10th, 1936, six weeks after the last killing, the body of victim number six was discovered, floating in raw sewage on 37th Street in Kingsbury Run, only a half a mile from Jackass Hill. This time, the body was next to a large drifter community that had grown up next to a sewer outlet, where several sewer lines poured out into a large fetid pool. A homeless man from St. Louis had stopped there while waiting for an eastbound freight train, only to see something bobbing in the water. He quickly realized it was two halves of a man's torso. Police were called in to search the water. Oh, oh God, the smell. You aren't used to that by now, Detective May? We've been wading through the waters of Kingsbury Run for months now. Yeah, the ravine just has a... A little more charm than the sewer, you know? I do not. Fan out, men. See what you could find. Our sources said he saw two pieces of torso, right? I really hope that's all that's in here. Well, we'll have to search every inch of this pool for evidence. Just our luck. Wait. What's that? Get a light on it! Ah, jeez. Looks like a chunk of person, all right. Get a hook in it. Pull it out. Looks like a man's legs. Thighs, too. I am not going back in there. We're going to have to call some divers. Marine diver John D. Stanton spent five hours searching the bottom of the pool and the tunnel leading to it, feeling along the bottom with his hands because it was too dark to see. He found nothing. Police even drained the pool, but they found nothing but junk. No other parts of the body were ever discovered. The autopsy was performed by Coroner Arthur J. Pierce, who ruled that the cause of death was probable murder by decapitation and dissection of body. Once again, an inspection of the heart showed that the victim was probably alive when he was dismembered. The victim's genitals had also been removed, just like the first two victims. On September 11, 1936, Pierce gave his theory on the killer to a reporter for Cleveland Daily News. The killer is apparently a sex maniac of the sadistic type. This is indicated by the condition of the victims. He's probably a muscular man. The slayer definitely has expert knowledge of human anatomy. The incisions of his knife are clean and were made in each case without guesswork. He may have gathered his knowledge of anatomy as a medical student, or it is possible that he is a butcher 
From the way the body was found, police theorized that the parts were likely dropped in the sewer further up the line in Kingsbury Run. Although a railroad switchman had reported seeing a green Model T Ford truck parked beside the pool the night before the body was found. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find out anything more about the sighting. Some clothing was also found by the pool, including a bloody blue denim shirt with knife cuts on the collar, a pair of blood-spotted green shorts with a JW laundry mark, and an old felt hat, size seven and a quarter, with a label on the sweatband for Loudy's Smart Shop, Bellevue. However, this proved to be yet another dead end. Police were able to trace the hat back to a housewife in Bellevue, Ohio. Two weeks before the killing, she'd given the hat to a homeless man that had knocked on her door. The man matched the general size of the victim, but they were never able to prove it was him or discover anything more about him. At this point, the citizens of Cleveland were becoming obsessed with finding this killer. It had been about one year since the first two victims had been found in September 1935. Terrified citizens were flooding police with tips and desperate calls, convinced that they knew who the killer was. But none of the leads panned out, and all of this public fear and outrage was putting more and more pressure on officials. Police were getting desperate. They staged overnight vigils in Kingsbury Run, hoping to catch the killer in the act. People could be hauled in for questioning on the flimsiest of suspicions. A pushcart operator named Frank Gomez was brought in simply because two detectives had seen him in the area. Detective Musel brought in another suspect simply because he was known to live in a nearby shack. Pressure to find the killer was affecting everyone involved in the case especially Chief of Police George Matowitz. His solution was to assign a new full-time detective to the case, Peter Murillo. Murillo was officially given the assignment on September 10th. He was told he could work as many hours as he felt necessary and could pick his own partner. He chose Detective Martin Zalewski, who'd worked as a beat cop in the Jackass Hill area. Morello was well-suited to tracking down info in Cleveland's immigrant neighborhoods as he'd emigrated from Ukraine as a teenager and spoke seven Eastern European languages. He had a reputation as a dedicated, incorruptible investigator and a cop's cop. Chief Matowitz told Morello that he'd chosen him over the 1,400 other men in the department because, I have faith in you. If you don't find the killer, no one else will. But Matowitz wasn't the only public official feeling the heat. Mayor Harold Hitz Burton was also feeling pressure to find a killer as soon as possible. But Burton had a secret weapon. When Burton was elected in 1935, he'd offered the job of safety director to former federal agent Elliot Ness. Ness had taken the job and focused on cleaning up police corruption while simultaneously tackling gambling and racketeering. The type of crime fighting you'd expect from the man who took down Al Capone. And faced with an unidentifiable killer and mounting bad publicity, Burton turned to Ness. Mr. Ness, come in. Mayor Burton, how are you? It's the damn torso killings. From the way the papers talk about me, you think I'd cut up those bodies myself. Ah, they don't realize what a tough job it is. Catching a killer amongst all that squalor? It's practically impossible. Is that why you haven't tackled it yet? Sir? Look, I need someone to find this killer so the city can breathe easy again. And you are the safety director. This isn't quite my... Look, Ness, 
I need you to take care of this. Isn't this something the Chief of Police should be handling? I'm sure you and Matowitz will be able to handle this together. But I want to be able to say Elliot Ness is in charge of the investigation. All right. I'll try my best. So, on September 12th, 1936, Elliot Ness officially took charge of the case. His first act was to send a wave of policemen into Kingsbury Run. They poured into the neighborhood's shanty towns, dragging in as many residents as possible for questioning. The position of safety director was always a little vague, and there was confusion over who was really in charge. And so on September 13th, Ness ordered Morello to his office. All right, Morello. What progress have you made so far? It's been three days, sir. So you've done nothing? Nothing at all? I am still digesting all the material relevant to the investigation. (sighs) Anything else? I can say little at this point except that I feel the murders were sex crimes. Can I go now? You know, I didn't catch Al Capone by digesting relevant materials. No, sir. That was the lawyers. What are you- They got him on his taxes, right? You just shot up a bunch of bars. Drinking is not illegal anymore, Mr. Ness. You know that, right? If you don't start producing results, I'm gonna have to tell the mayor that you're obstructing the investigation. Understood? Yes, sir. You're dismissed. Thank you, sir. Marillo and Ness would share the spotlight on the case. Marillo would also come to despise him. Clearly, Ness was under enormous pressure to solve the case and desperate for new leads. And as the body count continued to rise, he was pushed over the edge. What he did next would put a permanent stain on his reputation as an American hero. Next episode, we'll learn about Ness's prime suspect and the lawman's controversial solution to stopping the murders, setting Cleveland on fire. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the Kingsbury Run murders. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by John Gutierrez and stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Steve Pinto, Harris Markson, Jack Shulruff, and Dan Velasquez.